You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. come this evening uh, back into our series on Hosea, and we'll be looking at chapter 11 of Hosea, and Lord willing, my voice will hold throughout the sermon, or it might be a tad shorter this evening. But before we read, let us uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to your holy word. We pray that you would feed us, that you would speak to us that you would convict and convert. We ask all of this to the blessing and praise and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we come back to Hosea chapter 11. Uh, We have been looking through uh, this, uh, the first of the minor prophets. Before I read the text, just to bring us a little bit back up to speed of uh, where we have come from. And sort of where we are going. Hosea can be roughly divided into three major sections. Uh, The part that we're all most familiar with is the first three verses. This is where Hosea is commanded by God to marry this woman named Gomer, who is, we're not really sure of her background other than uh, she has, uh, is known as an adulterer in some capacity. And so Hosea's marriage to Gomer is a picture of the Lord's marriage to Israel. In both its judgment, this is a picture of Israel and who she is, but also in God's long-suffering nature, in God's loving nature. There's these wonderful images of God as this husband who is caring for a bride who does not want his love, but he woos her back. And so it's important to remember that this is the the context that starts the book of Hosea. God, as a loving husband, bringing his wayward bride back. Because it's easy for us to get bogged down, if you will, in this large covenant lawsuit that Hosea is now executing against the people, verses, or sorry, chapters 4 through 10, where it can sound a bit repetitive. It seems as if when we were going through this that every week we would come back to the same theme that we are sinners deserving of the Lord's judgment. And indeed, chapter 4 begins by speaking of spiritual adultery. This is the sin that is underlying all of the problems in Hosea. But chapter 5 drills down further and speaks of the failures of the priests to regulate true worship. In chapter 6, there's this false repentance. Israel doesn't actually understand their sin and God's holiness, where there's this disconnect coming. Chapter 7 brings to light that there's corrupt and wicked leadership that are leading the people astray. In chapter 8, in light of all of this, it's this constant reminder that Israel will face their sins. And in chapter 9, all the prosperity that they have trusted in in the end, will not save them. Their idolatry will come up incredibly short. And finally, in chapter 10, which ends this this block of this lawsuit against God's people, that this judgment is coming from the hands of the Assyrians. And it's pictured as a a de-exodus. 
And that's why throughout Hosea, you'll hear uh, terms of, of them going back to Egypt. And as we'll see in our text today, that's not a physical return to Egypt, but a spiritual return. That they're, they're, It's a de-exodus. It's a return to spiritual bondage. And if chapter 10 was where we left off, it would seem a rather hopeless and a bleak book. Yet as we'll see in chapter 11 in just a moment, that 11 through 14 really start to show that there is this future hope and it's grounded in God's character, but also it is through uh, Israel's repentance. And chapter 11 we'll see is a beautiful chapter because though judgment is coming, it's not total. It's not total annihilation, total destruction. And simply put, it's because of God's character and his promises, which are greater than the people's sins. In chapter 14, we'll end the book of Hosea offering this path of wisdom if they would understand, if they would repent. That repentance is offered still to the people of God. It'll take the rest of the minor prophets for this story to continue to unfold. Indeed, it'll take the New Testament times for us to see God's great love for his people and understanding how he truly brings them out of a spiritual Egypt. And so with all of that in mind of where we've come from, uh, let's look now at Hosea chapter 11. Starting in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. <coughs> they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go to the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Well, as we come to this passage, we can really see it in three parts. Uh, verse 12 actually will leave off uh, till we tackle chapter 12. In the Hebrew, actually, the chapter break occurs actually at uh, verse 11. 
And so we'll leave off uh, verse 12 uh, till next time. So if anyone wonders why we don't deal with it, that's why. But looking at this passage, we can break it down. Uh, It begins in the first four verses with God's care for his people. You'll note the language there of, of a father and a son, but the, the imagery seems to almost be that of a, of a toddler being cared for. But then in verses 5 through 7, we see God's judgment on his people. In verses 8 through 11, God's promises, God's promise to his people. And so as we, we move into chapter 11, it does seem as if to use a musical terminology, there's a change in keys from minor themes to major ones. That in the symphony that Hosea is, if you will, composing, there's now happier notes that are being played. There seem to be now, as he's speaking about God's love and God's character, that there's now the beginnings of hope that starts to pervade these last and final chapters. But you'll note that even in the midst of this, uh, judgment this minor key theme, if you will, this judgment uh, doesn't just disappear. It isn't, isn't as if now God in his mercy looks upon his people and says, no, I just will ignore their sin. But yet what we have is this holy and wonderful mixture here in Hosea, a one of God and his mercy, but also God and his justice, God and his holiness. That there is the God who makes these wonderful promises to David and to Abraham, among others. But in particular, these promises that he has made cannot be broken. And to me, that that is one of the most incredible points of the Old Testament, is that when God makes these promises to his people, not even his people's own sin can break them. And indeed, that's what Hosea is driving at here, that God has made these promises, that all of this is hinging upon God's word, that when he says something, it will come to pass. But the other theme here throughout Hosea is that God has also threatened judgment against his people. There are are real punishments for those who break the covenant. And we've seen that through chapters 4 through 10. But again, thinking back through chapters 1 through 3, there's this love despite their sin. And it feels like here now in chapter 11, Hosea, through the power of the Spirit, is bringing both of these themes together, that of God's promises, God's love, but also God's judgment. And so we see here the care for God's people in the first four verses. And it's wonderful, this picture. Again, I know we've taken a break between chapter 10 and chapter 11, but chapter 10 was bleak as well. God condemning the sins of his people. And then when we move over into chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I mean, think of the the tender language that's being spoken of here, that the Exodus is not just an event where the Lord redeemed his people and saved them from bondage, but also it is a, a moment in time where God, as it were, adopts Israel formally, and they become his people through that. And so we have this way in which God tenderly cares 
for his people. But also note what is behind this. If Israel is a son to God, then that means God is a father to them. God must be to them a loving father. Now, this is not a theme that is very dominant in the Old Testament. And again, as, as something I find very interesting is that the way in which Hosea can be particularly grim at times, it has some of the most loving and lovely language in it, the, some of the most wonderful metaphors this side of the New Testament. God is a loving uh, bridegroom, loving his bride, despite the fact that he shouldn't, it seems. Or God here as the tender father, loving a son who runs away. And we think of the ways in which this will become so much clearer in the New Testament. Right here, we, we have the, the background, if you will, of this wonderful doctrine of adoption that we saw so clearly uh, in the book of Ephesians. That through God's Son now, we become sons. That through the Spirit, we are adopted and brought into God's family. That we become sons of the great King. And so all of those promises then that cannot be broken now then apply to us. And so God says of him, of Ephraim, I loved him and I called him. It's this reminder that God's love is, is a, 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 it always necessitates action. It necessitates being worked out in something. When God places his love upon an object, it's not just a theoretical love as if God just has lovely thoughts or little heart bubbles popping up when he thinks of things, but rather it's the way in which he acts out this love. I think of just simply put John 3.16. Right? John 3.16 speaks of God's love for the world, and it's demonstrated by the sending of his Son. In many ways, we see that, that theme here of God's love, which necessitates him rescuing his people and bringing them to him. But yet the sad reality that Hosea has been pointing out is that the more they were called, the more they went away, the more they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So the more it seems that God calls out to them, the more they run away. And verse 2 is a little bit difficult uh, to translate the beginning of it. And so if you're reading it in a New International Version, or some versions will translate this as, I called them and they went away from my presence. Instead of the more they were called, the more they went away. And I won't get into Hebrew grammar or why that difference is happening there. But suffice to say, regardless of what's happening, the, the point of the text is that Israel is running away from the Lord. And actually, quite ironic, is that they're trying to gain help from Egypt. The very people that enslaved them. They're turning to the very idols that the nations before were dispossessed because of their idolatry. That Israel is doing everything in their power except the one thing that would matter. And then God says in verse 3, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. All along, it is, it is Yahweh. It is the Lord who is lifting them up. It's the one who is, is teaching them to walk. It is the one who is healing them. 
He's the one who is leading them. And they seem to just never know that it is behind all of these things, that it is the Lord that is doing this. And so it says here, I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. Cords of kindness, literally, it's the cords of a man. It's the same word we get the word Adam from, or man, mankind. That God leads them with that which is appropriate to them. He's not leading them as a beast of burden, but he's leading them as a man. He's leading them as a, as a human being. He is caring for them. I think of Psalm 8 when David looks upon the stars and all that he can see in the night sky and he wonders why God would care for man or for the son of man, why he would care for humans at all. And yet David reflects that they were made a little lower than the angels, yet it's not angels whom the Lord loves and redeems, but rather humanity. And so Hosea, continuing on, the Lord, as he's speaking to his people, he then switches from uh, these metaphors based upon humans to that of animals at the last part of verse 4, that he's one who bends down and eases the yoke upon their jaws. And he bends down, stoops down to feed them. Anyone who's ever handled animals before and just the, the way in which it's such a tender thing because they're generally, at least this animal here spoken of as smaller than him, that he's leaning down and feeding this animal, that they are, are, are responsible, they're finding their care in him. And I just think of the ways in which Hosea is constantly trying to give us more metaphors for us to truly grasp God's love. He's trying to really help us to understand and whether whichever metaphor he needs to pull from in order for us to understand what it means for this infinite being, for God to love us. Right, the, the bridegroom who loves an unlovable wife, the father who tenderly cares and loves for a wayward child or the great shepherd or caretaker with this love and treating this animal with kindness and compassion and care and feeding. That this is the picture of who God is. The, the great creator, the, the great sustainer, the one who rescues his people, the one who hears. And as we heard this morning, the, the one who lifts his people up and saves them. And so this is the, the way in which Hosea begins this section, offering the people of Israel, and indeed us, tremendous amount of hope. That if this is the character of God, then we should flee to him. He should be the one that we pray to, the one that we trust in, the one we place all of our hope in. Because part of what Hosea is doing here is he, is he is offering the people of Israel something better than what they have. Remember, at this point, they are trying to find any sort of help that they can, whether from false gods or false political allies. And Hosea really is saying one of those is fake, the other <laughs> is evil. Neither will help you, yet the one who could help you is also the one that does help and does love. Right? He, he's offering them something amazing, that they would have this God as their God, that they would be his people, that they would be called his son. 
But in verses 5 through 6, we see the, the judgment that is still coming upon his people. And so there's this tension that happens between this. The one, on the one hand, there is God's promise and his love, but also the fact that Israel is just simply guilty. In verses 5 through 7, we see the ways in which, in verse 5, that they should not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. And again, Egypt here has been held out not as a physical destination for the people of God, but as a reminder of the physical and the spiritual bondage that they were under when they were underneath uh, the, the, Egypt, the, the Egyptians during the time of the Exodus. And so that they're going to now be sent to the Assyrians where they will find themselves back in physical and in spiritual bondage that they refuse to return to the Lord. And so the Lord is going to then destroy this entire area. The sword shall come through. The sword is, is personified as this, instead of this great army coming through, there seems to be just this divine sword that rages against the cities, that consumes the bars, that after the sword falls, there's nothing left. It will devour everything. It is all-consuming, and nothing is left in its path. And they will be devoured. The sword will devour them because of their own counsels. This has been the problem that Hosea has been continually reminding the people that they seek counsel in themselves and in their own hearts instead of turning to the Word of God and what God has to say. They instead continue to go their own way. And my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And again, we end up with this tension here on the one hand of God's love for his people, but also the coming judgment. I think it's interesting in verse 7, it doesn't say, and they call out to Yahweh, to the Lord Jehovah, but rather they call out to the Most High, which, yes, God can be referred to as the Most High, as the one who is high and exalted, the one who even heaven cannot contain him. But I wonder here if there's this mixture going on where they're calling out to someone, and then there's this confusion happening between the Baals and between God, that they're calling out and wanting someone, whoever is most powerful, to come and to help them instead of calling out to God. And he shall not raise them up at all. And so this judgment is coming. And that's the, the stark contrast that Hosea paints this picture for us, that there is these promises where God will not destroy them completely, yet they are those who have broken the covenant promises, and they will be punished for them. But again, as we, we seem to, to move between these twin points of, of mercy and judgment, uh, verses 8 through 11 uh, really help set, the, 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 set this whole thing uh, together with the way in which God has compassion towards his people. And look at verse 8. Though judgment is coming, God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? As you'll go on later, I will not again destroy you. In verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger on you. So there's this sense in which God is looking at his people and will not utterly destroy them. It seems to be reminiscent of the time in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. 
Though death was promised, God did not obliterate them off the face of the planet, but rather they faced their judgment and they were exiled out of the garden, but they were given great promises. That God is, as it says here in our text, my compassion grows warm and tender. My heart recoils within me. And so we see here, this, this, again, this picture of God as the one who does not necessarily delight in this destruction, though he is a God who is holy. He sees his people, and he yearns for them, and he loves them. And he says, how can I make you like Adma and treat you like Zeboim? These are cities that surrounded Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, the, the theme here is how can I utterly destroy you? And so while the people do deserve judgment, God is not coming so that they will be no more. Just as when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, they're not destroyed, they're on the spot. And all of this hinges upon the character of God. At the end of verse 9, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And so part of this hope is found for Israel in this wonderful theology of who God is, that he is someone who is unchanging. And again, we come back to the ways in which these promises of God are set forth that from Abraham will come this great nation. And that to David, this great king will come from the line of David who will reign forever. And that God has made these promises and he has put his love upon his people And so there is tremendous hope for those who are part of Israel during this time. The the faithful ones in Israel hearing this message, yes, of impending judgment that is coming, but also mercy that is being held out to them. That God is a God of, of love and who yearns and calls to his people to repent and they would have every, every uh, ability now to, to know that when God calls them to repent, he would forgive them. But then it goes further than just merely speaking about the possibility of repentance. In verses 10 through 11, there's this wonderful picture where the Lord is roaring like a lion. And when this roar goes forth across the earth, this great call goes out. The children of the Lord come trembling from the west. They come trembling from Egypt. They come trembling from Assyria. And he says, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. And again, I think this wraps it up nicely when we think of judgment coming, but also God's love that is above all. That when he roars like this in judgment, the people come and there's a tremblingness because they're coming to a God who is holy and who is powerful, but they're coming to a God who is also loving and caring. And it's hard not to read this part and think of the way in which Lewis describes Aslan as this great lion that is not safe, but he's good. Here the Lord is pictured as someone who is not safe, but who is good, who is loving, who has made these promises and who will keep them despite his people's sins. So as we bring this to a close this evening, simply put, chapter 11 of Hosea speaks quite simply to the fact that God loves sinners. 
that God loves sinners. I mean, think about the way in which the people in the Old Testament are pictured. They are far from perfect. They are sinners. And not just sinners, but sinners who run away from God at any and every chance that they get. And yet God is pictured as one who is long-suffering and who is going to great lengths to bring his people back. I mean, think about this for a moment. Imagine with me, like, what, is the, what is the worst thing that you could do to God? What is the worst thing that you could commit? What is the worst thing that you could do that you believe would be the thing that would cause God not to love you anymore? I mean, think for a moment. What is it that you could do as an unbeliever or as a Christian, what's the worst thing you could do? Murder? Adultery? Idolatry? Theft? The beauty of the gospel is that God's love is greater. That God's forgiveness is mightier. I mean, again, as we, we turn to the pages of the New Testament, Jesus is the one who comes and who lives a, a sinful, uh, sinless life, just making sure everyone's paying attention, comes and lives a sinless life in order that our sin may be placed upon him. That he who was without sin was made sin in order that we might have the righteousness of God. That through Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, it speaks of the fact that he has brought peace with God. I mean, you can think about the ways in which here we have this love and this mercy, but also this war that seems to be between God and his people, that this sword that is coming to consume, that, that Israel is living in, in unrepentance. And yet in the New Testament, we see how God can love, we see how God can execute his justice in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, yes, we, we need to hear about God's wrath. We need to hear about the way in which it will come upon all of those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Hosea has spent many chapters reminding us of the fact that God's wrath and his displeasure and his anger, that these are real things. These are real emotions that, that God has, and they are just. And that it will fall very hard on people who are unsuspecting. Though deep down they know that there is a God and they have sinned against him. But his wrath will fall and it will be terrible. And Hosea wants us to, to get a glimpse of that, to flee from that wrath to come. Because what he wants us to hear is he wants to hear, he wants us to hear about God's love. Because just as his wrath is shown to be real, so is his love. His love is, is real. And it's not just a feeling inside of him, but it's a way in which he acts. It's the way in which he has come. It's the way in which the Lord Jesus will come again. And the way in which the Lord Jesus, even now from the throne, is, is ruling and seeing his kingdom come further and further. 
that real people across this world are experiencing God's love and being transformed by that, and then being those who are called now sons that are brought into his family. So Hosea here wants us, if you will, to pause and to dwell upon this fact that God loves sinners. If this evening you're a sinner who has found grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, well then Hosea wants to, to fill up these metaphors of God's love for you. God is this great husband who loves. God is this great father who tenderly cares. God is this great shepherd who understands the weakness of his sheep. He wants that to influence your prayer life. He wants that to influence all of your life. But also Hosea clearly is also showing forth these, these options between these two, that if you're not a believer here this evening, he holds out God's wrath, which is real. But he gives us every indication, every indication that we can come to the Lord and find forgiveness. I think that's the beauty of this passage and indeed the whole book of Hosea, though these people are terrible people by all accounts. But if we look deep in our own hearts, we are terrible people too. Until the Lord Jesus changes us and shows his love for us. Uh, so brothers and sisters this evening, hear these words that God is love that he loves you in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that his word stands firm, his promises are true and unbreaking. So let us take hope and comfort this evening. Amen. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co.